Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Explaining History podcast, and today I'm going to be talking about the fall of Norway in 1940. Um, the reason why I want to talk about this is because if you've listened to the last few podcasts, we've talked about the, the period of the Phony War, uh, Chamberlain, Churchill, um, the Norway debates, um, and the relationship between Britain and America. And I think that there's a very interesting moment that happens in um, the, the spring and the summer of 1940, before uh, the fall of France, where this period of phony war, or Sitzkrieg, comes to an end. And the, the real contours of um, the Second World War begin to emerge. Uh, the uncertainties um, start to melt away into rather unpleasant realities, and that's what I think is worth focusing uh, the most on today. The reason why is that the war that Hitler winds up with, um, finally, by 1943-44, is quite different from the war that Hitler had intended. Now, there's an immense historiography on this, and a huge uh, debate, um, rather acrimonious, between uh, A.J.P. Taylor and Hugh Trevor Roper raged uh, during uh, the 1960s and 70s on precisely this, this topic, what, kind, what did Hitler have planned? Um, my own personal view is that Hitler intended, at least initially, to fight a fairly limited um, European war which would restore German hegemony and give Germany a kind of control over Eastern and Central Europe, creating the kind of German Middle Europa. Um, but that war actually had to be won in the West, and Hitler knew this. You had to defeat France and Britain. If Britain got involved, hopefully Britain wouldn't do um, it before you turn east. Hitler obviously had Lebensraum um, plans for the Soviet Union, but the timetable for attacking the Soviet Union in 1941, if you look at what Hitler was saying to his general staff in the 12 months beforehand, is really quite ambiguous. And again, what it shows us is um, Hitler had broad visions of what he wanted to achieve, 
but was a uh, an opportunist in the meantime and seized uh, opportunities where they lay, chances where they were possible. And the invasion of Norway um, is a moment where Hitler acts in uh, what he views as a hasty and decisive way. And ultimately, Norway is successful for Hitler, not so much because of his own um, seemingly, in, in his own mind, uh, infallible uh, judgment, uh, but because of the lack of preparedness by France and Britain, particularly the British, and the lack of understanding uh, about the nature of the war that would be fought uh, over the next five years. The uh, war had been fought uh, from September uh, 1939 uh, onwards over a seven-month period um, in a, a generally a kind of a piecemeal fashion. There had been uh, some uh, naval encounters on the high seas. Uh, ships like the Royal Oak had been sunk by the German uh, U-boat fleet at uh, Scapa Flow. In December 1939, um, the German ship Graf Spee was uh, captured or penned in uh, at uh, Montevideo Harbour in Uruguay. Um, and uh, was eventually scuttled, um, the so-called Battle of the River Plate was hailed by Churchill as, a, as an immense victory. Um, the uh, Royal Navy South American Division um, took uh, managed to cripple um, the Graf Spee uh, and gave it no, its captain no alternative but to sink the ship. Um, how significant a victory this was um, is you know relatively questionable. Um, the certainly uh, at this point um, there was little other um, method of taking the fight to the enemy, other than to simply sit and wait for uh, some kind of engagement in the West. Hitler knew who his enemies were in 1939: the British and the French. But a whole host of um, relatively smaller European powers uh, chose to remain neutral. Belgium, the Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Luxembourg, uh, and the powers really that were sandwiched between uh, Nazi Germany and France. Most of these powers had managed to remain neutral during the First World War, and actually, they looked upon the actions, in, in some cases, of the British and the French as likely to bring down the wrath of Hitler and were as, du as dubious uh, about um, Anglo-French design as they were about the plans of the Nazis. The Norwegians, in particular, thought that the plan drawn up by the British to aid Finland in its fight against Stalin, uh, the the Winter War of 1939-1940, which meant landing in the Norwegian North Cape and cutting across the Arctic, sending troops across the Arctic, the Norwegian Arctic, into Finland, risked uh, the possibility of war with the Soviet Union, but it also risked the possibility of invasion from Nazi Germany, 
Nazi Germany at this point in a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, where also saw Finland as a, a client state, um, but they would not have encouraged any kind of Allied involvement to help Finland. And certainly Hitler would have looked upon the landing of Allied troops in Norway as an attempt to seize Norway, which undoubtedly it would have been, and to place some kind of military protectorate over Norway. The interest that Hitler specifically had in Norway was the fact that uh, iron ore and other raw materials from Sweden were shipped through Norway down to the North German ports. The weakness of Norway was uh, clear uh, from the start, from the, I mean, the invasion began on the 9th of April. Um, when King Haakon uh, of Norway was awoken uh, to be told of the uh, invasion by the Germans, there was a huge confusion. And the small uh, Norwegian army hadn't been mobilised at this point. Uh, General Christian Lack, uh, the commander-in-chief of the Norwegian armed forces, began to call up reservists when German warships were seen sailing up Norwegian fjords. The reservists were called up by mail, and this meant that it would be 48 hours before any of them reported for duty. There were German troops disembarking at Norwegian ports before any of these men saw a uniform. The reason for this complacency was the assumption that um, the Royal Navy would present a sufficient deterrent to uh, the German high command and to Hitler that he would never try an amphibious invasion. And the risks are immense. The German Navy is far smaller than the British Royal Navy and troop ships sent from Germany across the Baltic to Norway are immensely vulnerable. But Hitler succeeded by defying the expectations of the Norwegians, the British and indeed the French, and the decision by Hitler to act, the impulsive decision to throw caution to the wind and to be decisive in his view, which was really kind of hardwired into Nazi ethos and the philosophy of fascism in general, uh, less time for thinking and more time for action, and action and constant dynamism being the uh, miracle formula that would uh, change Germany's fortunes. When combined with an inspired, charismatic and decisive leader, as Hitler saw himself as being, this is really the kind of textbook, um, the kind of ABC of uh, fascist Nazi thinking. And as we look more at the war in future podcasts, we'll see why it is that this attitude is initially successful but eventually fails and sort of crashes into harsh realities. The British uh, were suffering from poor intelligence and would have been able to devastate the German invasion fleet had the Royal Navy been in position at the right time. And as we'll see, the Royal Navy actually do inflict heavy losses on the German Navy up and down the Norwegian coast, but it's not enough to prevent the invasion. The closer proximity of Germany to Norway uh, from Britain meant that Germany was able to establish, to have air cover over her ships 
um, during the invasion and also once Germany had seized airfields in Norway they could harry the Royal Navy at sea and the British lost a large number of capital ships too during the battle for Norway because of an inability to have air cover from Great Britain. The Dunkirk evacuation that happens a, a month or so later is aided immensely by the ability of the British to send the RAF to cover the beaches. And there's a, a huge um, myth that the, uh, the soldiers on the beaches of Dunkirk, perhaps understandably, had about the RAF that they were doing next to nothing and allowing the beaches to be strafed, but this is far from the far from the case. Um, the RAF were actually fighting tirelessly to keep the Luftwaffe away from the beaches. One of the biggest losses to Germany on the day of the invasion was the sinking of the new cruiser Blücher, obviously named after Blücher, uh, the Prussian general who appeared on the final day of the Battle of Waterloo. An antiquated naval battery in the fortress at Oskarburg in Oslofjord uh, fired on the Blücher. It waited until the Blücher was uh, half a kilometre offshore, um, knowing that they had uh, very old guns, very antiquated guns. It waited, uh, the commander of the battery waited and thought maybe they would uh, score a lucky strike. Well, they hit two. They hit the anti-aircraft control system and they also hit a fuel uh, supply on the ship, um, causing a huge explosion. And then two torpedoes that were fired. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From shore, also sank, uh, brought the ship down, sinking it um, and taking a thousand German 
troops and sailors with it. Oslo was uh, quickly paralysed and the government was plunged into political crisis. The king refused to allow the government to resign and the government debated as to whether or not to surrender. Um, by this time, German paratroopers had seized Oslo airport and they had controlled much of the capital. The occupation of Norway was obviously dramatically different from that of Poland. The Norwegians were not in the eyes of Hitler untermensch, they were not to be reduced to a slave-like status, and they were not, uh, in his eyes, tainted and corrupted by Jewry or Bolshevism or uh, any of that, any of his other uh, wild fantasies. Instead, the Norwegians were seen as a people of equal status to the Germans in their uh, Aryan-ness, and the Germans hoped that they would be accepted as well-behaved guests, good neighbours, and protectors of Norway. After all, Norway was perilously close to Soviet Russia, and having a German army there, Hitler hoped, might be actually quite attractive. Of course, most Norwegians did not agree. Norwegians would also have realised on the 9th of April that Denmark, their closest neighbour, had also fallen to the Nazis in a simultaneous uh, operation. The fall of Copenhagen um, and the conquest of Denmark is one of the swiftest military uh, invasions in history. And the Danes were even in less of a position to resist than the Norwegians were. Uh, this meant that the capitulation of Norway was far more likely as there was now a virtual, uh, a broken bridge from Norway, from Germany through to southern Norway. The north was uh, more difficult for the Germans to occupy, but that really was going to be um, the, the bulk of Germany's campaign in Norway. By this point, on the 10th of April, uh, King Hakon and the Norwegian cabinet had retreated northwards to Elverum, uh, which was uh, not far from the Swedish border, and at a small village called Nybergsund, um, Hakon decided that he, he and he sped to the government. I'm profoundly moved at the idea of having to assume personal responsibility for the woes that will befall our country and our people if German demands are rejected. The government is free to decide, but I shall make my own position clear. I cannot accept this would conflict with everything I have considered to be my duty as king. So he simply said, I will not rule, king, I will not rule Norway uh, under a fascist government, and the new puppet dictatorship set up by Hitler of Vidkun Quisling on that very same day would not be legitimised by King Hakon. The king simply said to the government that uh, the rest of his cabinet ministers, they could make their own choices about what their consciences told them to do, but he had already decided. So Hakon and the government uh, became a government in exile, firstly in internal exile, they fled to Lillehammer, um, and then after that they became uh, a government in exile overseas, uh, finding refuge in Great Britain. Most of the equipment and arms of the Norwegian army were in the south, the areas swiftly occupied by the Germans. Some 40,000 men assembled themselves, but they were so lightly equipped that they couldn't do a great deal. 
the Norwegian population perhaps scored uh, more kills uh, than the Norwegian army as local people, um, members of sporting clubs, rifle clubs and people who uh, hunted uh, and trekked the wilderness, um, the wildernesses of northern Norway were able to engage the German army in skirmishes and ambushes, though not much of this really had any great effect. Both the British and the French, when they landed, and the Germans, had a very weak knowledge of Norwegian geography and Norwegian uh, culture, and didn't had never really anticipated that they might wind up fighting in Norway. Uh, so the much of the invasion plans were um, improvised, but the British and the French, uh, even though they managed to um, outnumber in many places uh, the Germans, still managed to make uh, an inept and weak uh, disaster of the invasion mission. Most of the British army was deployed in France. The British sent 12 battalions of Territorial Army troops. These are the uh, British uh, reserve troops who were uh, part lightly trained. Um, they were sent without clear objectives, and the objectives changed on a uh, very short-term basis, sometimes hourly, and they were distributed uh, widely, so they were sent to different ports and different landing grounds, meaning that there was no build-up of force, uh, as you see much later in the war during uh, following D-Day, uh, where people, um, the British and the Americans, really understood amphibious operations. Troops landed without maps, radios, transport, uh, sufficient heavy weapons, armour, and most crucially, there was almost no air support. Incompetence seemed to reign at almost every level. There were reports given to the British government by the Norwegians of naval officers who discounted the information given to them by Norwegians, assuming, of course, that Norwegians must, on some level, be fifth columnists or uh, in helping the Germans by spreading misinformation. Chief of interest to the British was the port of Narvik in the far north. Seizing Narvik would prevent the flow of iron ore to Germany that crossed through from northern Sweden. The battle is partly lost in Norway, but it's also partly lost in Downing Street. The British government and Neville Chamberlain is hopelessly divided about what to do. Winston Churchill, First Lord of the Admiralty, has the loudest voice and he is a veteran of amphibious landings and particularly disastrous ones. His brainchild, um, along with Admiral Jackie Fisher during the First World War, was of course Gallipoli. So because government ministers were arguing between themselves and between service chiefs, and demanding the impossible, uh, particularly Churchill, who had a penchant for coming up with incredible schemes, uh, but without the uh, naval squadrons or divisions to actually make them happen. And there were obviously fierce debates with the French, who had also landed troops, and the um, French foreign legionaries along the Norwegian coastline. It meant that the messages that were filtering through to the men on the ground, to the uh, commanders in the field, 
were confused or non-existent. Basically, Britain's generals on the ground who were landing troops didn't know what it was particularly that the British government wanted because the British government didn't know what it wanted. And it would take several years into the war for the British government to begin to really embrace the idea that the decisions made in the cabinet war rooms had significant impacts on the likelihood, the likely success of a military operation. This is partly why the uh, chief of the Imperial General Staff uh, by 1942, Sir Alan Brooke, spent such a long time telling Winston Churchill of the dozen plans he had every day, which 11 were unlikely to work or be a waste of time. Successes that British soldiers had, particularly at Gravan on the 25th of April, were undone by the general weaknesses in overall British strategy. The one significant military figure, Adrian Carton de Viart, um, an extraordinary figure who had uh, lost various limbs and eyes in the First World War and was a a risk-taking maverick to the point of almost parody, uh, was told by um, one staff officer who was sent out by the War Office that, by all means, carry on, do what you like, because the government doesn't really know what it wants you to do. The eventual result was uh, an evacuation of British troops, so it was um, the... Dunkirk would be the second evacuation in as many months. And the Norway debates that follow, and you can go back and listen to the last few podcasts I've done about Churchill, Chamberlain, uh, and so on and so forth, and I've talked a lot about this. Uh, The Norway debates were really the British Parliament exercising immense frustration and deep embarrassment and shame over the the course of the war and a feeling that Chamberlain's weakness, and Chamberlain was at this point constantly trying to avoid criticism, uh, but that Chamberlain's weakness had handed Hitler an easy and preventable victory. Now, the course of the Second World War, we see more and more um, often that Germany benefited uh, quite staggering, just quite staggering proportions by uh, the British in particular, but not alone, handing easy and preventable victories. Uh, Crete is another case in point, but we'll talk about that another time. Another part of the fallout from Norway was a disagreement between the British and French uh, over who was to blame and whose strategies worked and whose didn't and who had undermined the other. Um, they, you got to a point where the British and French soldiers were actually looting each other's stores uh, during the campaign. And just at the time when the British and French needed to be more united than ever before as the uh, invasion of France began... Uh, they were divided. Okay, so I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and uh, it's great that we're managing to build a kind of a theme here together about 1939 to 40 and there's been some great feedback and some real interest. uh, So thanks everybody. Now if you are looking to lend us a hand, which is always grateful, uh, there's a Patreon page. I'm going to put the link below here. Otherwise, if you're broke, and we all are these days, Uh, You can simply uh, give us some goodwill, tell a friend about the podcast, pass the word on, or give us a thumbs up on the Explaining History iTunes page, which you can find 
in iTunes. Um, thanks very much, and I'll catch you on the next podcast. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.